Lumos. Hello, and welcome to this episode of the Harry Podcast, the show where we analyze and discuss each chapter of the Harry Potter series from a literary perspective. I'm David. And I'm Madeline, and today's episode is called Harry Podcast and the Firebolt. Today we will be discussing Harry's predictability, Trelawney's idea of dinner entertainment, and who, if anyone, makes a good decision related to the Firebolt. So the chapter begins almost immediately after the end of the last one, where Harry has just overheard that whole conversation between all the professors about the way that his parents died and how Sirius Black betrayed them. So he's extremely upset, and Ron and Hermione are very concerned that he's going to actually go after Black, like sort of everybody thought he would when he found out the truth. So the trio goes to Hagrid's hut for a distraction. Um, They say, we haven't visited him in a while, let's go. They get to the door and they find that Hagrid is sobbing because Buckbeak, the hippogriff, is going to trial and will likely be sentenced to die due to Malfoy's injury. So they decide they're going to try to help Hagrid as much as they can. They go to the library to research cases of magical creatures being spared by that committee so that they can use that as precedent in Hagrid's case, but they don't have any luck so far. And then it's Christmas Day, and when Harry and Ron are opening presents, Harry finds an unmarked package containing the broom of his dreams, which is the Firebolt. So Hermione is wary of the broomstick, which was not delivered with a return address or any note of any kind, Um, but she doesn't tell them why she's wary about it, um, which irritates Harry and Ron. So then the trio goes to a small Christmas dinner with the students and faculty who have stayed there for Christmas. To everyone's surprise, Professor Trelawney joins them at the table and then predicts various people's deaths, um, including whomever gets up from the table first and Professor Lupin, although she does that in a roundabout way. Hermione then stays behind to talk to McGonagall after dinner, and the two of them eventually join Harry and Ron in the Gryffindor common room in order for McGonagall to confiscate the firebolt. So Hermione goes on to explain that she believes that the broom might be cursed, and was sent by Sirius Black to kill Harry, um, which is a very plausible explanation of getting that expensive a present with no note and no address, but Ron and Harry are still furious with her for taking away Harry's now most prized possession. So starting back at the beginning of the chapter, Harry's reaction to finding out the full extent of the situation with Sirius Black and his parents um, is exactly what Arthur and others predicted when Harry would find out all this information. Um, So what does this reaction, which is basically extreme anger and wanting to seek revenge, what does that say about Harry's character? Well, I mean, I think it says that he is a very predictable character at this stage. You know, he's just beginning to be a teenager, and so he's got probably a lot of hormones going on. um, And that he's, like, very easily driven to these emotions of anger and um, wanting to seek out revenge. Um... For being wronged it, it definitely shows that he's still very very sensitive about his parents deaths mm-hmm. um i think that's understandable um it shows that he's very sensitive about betrayal and uh like friends not being loyal to you which is interesting um that's not something that will ever really happen to harry um in the series but it is interesting that that's like a, it seems to be like a big trigger for him mm-hmm. um, we're not really sure why another thing that i found interesting is in this chapter Um, Harry recalls that Draco Malfoy at one point when he was taunting Harry a few chapters ago, um, knows about this and, and knows that like that Sirius Black betrayed Harry's parents. 
And and Draco even told him, like, if it were me, I would be going after him. Right. And this is obviously, like, Malfoy trying to goad Harry into doing something stupid. But at the same time, Harry takes this advice seriously. Mm-hmm. Um, and Ron and Hermione are kind of dumbfounded because they're like, you're going to take Malfoy's advice and not ours? Right. Um, the, the scene with his friends, too, I think is really cute because uh, they have clearly, like, Harry gets up late. Yeah, and, they're and really worried. They've very clearly like rehearsed this conversation a bunch of times mm-hmm. because they're really worried about him. Um, they know that he's in like a really fragile emotional state, and they they don't want him to do anything reckless. Um, and so they're, you know, brainstorming, coming up with these ideas of what to say. Mm-hmm. And to Harry and to the reader, it sounds rehearsed because it is. But um, I think it's really really sweet that they went through that much effort just to try to you know calm him down. Yeah, it's it's true. And I think back to the Malfoy thing, you know, I wonder if it's not so much him taking Malfoy's advice over them, but just that, you know, Malfoy is uh, smarter than he seems and is a good manipulator. And so I think that Malfoy just knows that that's the kind of person that Harry is and that he will do that. Yeah. Um, so he's say he's saying it in this way, but I think that you know, Harry probably would have done that anyway. Um, even if Malfoy had never said that, if he had heard it, he would have he would have still wanted revenge. You know what I mean? Yeah. And this also, I think, kind of brings up another point about, like, what Harry learns about people versus, like, what his experiences were with them. Mm-hmm. Um, it's not an exact parallel, but, like, uh, Harry does this a bunch during the series, especially in, like, the last book um, and in the fifth book, I'd say, too. Like, he learns all this stuff about his father... Growing up, he never knew his father, so, like, everything he hears about him is secondhand. And then when he sees, like, Snape's worst memory, he suddenly has this, like, very tainted image of his father as being, like, very different than what he thought. Mm -hmm. Um, Even though it's, like, obviously a biased interpretation of his father from, like, his most hated rival. Mm -hmm. Um, Then same thing with Dumbledore when he reads Rita Skeeter's biography of Mm -hmm. Dumbledore, which is very biased um, and inciting. You know, it's not meant to be a historical book. Um, It's meant to be biased. He still, like, allows that to really affect his perception of Dumbledore the man Mm -hmm. in a way that I think most people would not have it affect them so much. Um, But I think Harry is one of these people that, you know, for better or for worse, he kind of sees the world in black and white. And when someone doesn't live up to his expectations in a very obvious way, he allows that to really taint his memory of them. Yeah, and I think it also just has to do a lot with that he has so few people that he feels like he can trust or look up yeah. to and um or even in memory like his father and he doesn't kind of want to waste his time on people that aren't going to be what he expects them to be or he also just really doesn't like the idea of like being duped or tricked in some way and i think yeah. that that as you know goes along a lot with this situation finding out about Sirius. i think it's um, you know, he feels really angry about the situation, but I think he also just feels really angry that nobody told him the full extent of the situation, even though obviously he's having this reaction and that's why. Yeah. And I think, it, again, it goes back to the betrayal thing. You know, it can feel like a betrayal when people withhold mm-hmm. information from you that would have changed your perspective on something. Um, so, yeah, I think I think that also has something to do with it. So next, I just wanted to talk about the sneakoscope. I think we've brought it up a couple times before. Um, but it's one of those things where, as a first-time reader, 
you're encouraged by like pretty much everybody in the series to just discount it whenever it goes off. Right. Everybody is like, oh yeah, those things are worthless. They're just like a tourist trap, mm-hmm. basically. But in fact, we see that every time the sneakoscope does go off in the series, it's because someone untrustworthy is nearby. Right. Um, and we see it go off here. Um, obviously, we know looking back in hindsight that it's going off because Peter Pettigrew is right there in Ron's pocket. Right. So her. So at the time, what's going on is that. Hermione has brought Crookshanks into the Ron and Harry's dormitory, and Crookshanks is trying to attack Scabbers, like Crookshanks always does. Mm-hmm. And so um, the sneak scope is going off, and Ron is saying, like, you know, there's something wrong with that cat. You know, that cat is... Right, so, so they think it might be Crookshanks. They're really focused on Crookshanks. Um, Harry is kind of, I think, dismissing it just as, like, these things are broken, Hermione is also at then thinking that there's something wrong with the broom, and that's what's, uh, mm-hmm. you know, setting it off. So those are some of their own internal thoughts or theories that they say. Um, so back to what we know, which is that Peter Pettigrew is there um, and is an animagist. What, um, why is nobody really thinking about um, an animagist at this point? Well, we would expect Hermione maybe to be the one to think about it, right? Um, but in fact, the reason why Hermione rules it out in her head and then explicitly later um, is that she knows, I, she's probably memorized the list of registered animagi, which is um, in some sort of paperwork at the Ministry of Magic. Mm-hmm. It's on file. And so she basically assumes that there's no way there could be an unregistered animagus. Right. She Maybe it's her inherent faith in the Ministry of Magic's ability to regulate this kind of thing with the bureaucracy, or maybe it's just that she can't conceive of people breaking that rule. Um, but either way, I think it is telling about her character at this stage. She's still evolving from the person we saw in Philosopher's Stone, who's so bent on following the rules that She's willing to even, like, ignore um, what's right in favor of what is, like, the rule mm-hmm. um, to here where she's much more willing to let people break rules, but she still has a hard time conceiving of certain rules being broken. Right. And I do think the part about trust in the ministry is definitely even stronger than the rule breaking at this point because yeah. I think there hasn't been – there will be in this book st- starting to be um, some challenges or questions about the ministry's – um, ethics and authority but i think that at this point she's feeling like we should trust them and they have control over that yeah and i think that's a great transition into talking about buckbeak's trial as right. well because this is like i think a not an earth-shattering moment for hermione but it does shake her trust in the ministry of magic as an institution because hagrid who they love and trust is telling them that like this specific committee the committee for the disposal of dangerous creatures um is all corrupt. They're all in Lucius Malfoy's pocket, and uh, they, you know, basically chop off creatures' heads willy-nilly, right. even if there's, like, a hint of a threat. Um, and so the, it, it kind of tells us as readers, like, the Ministry is ineffectual and lazy. Mm-hmm. They don't really investigate things unless they feel like they have to, and they're willing to accept whatever flimsy explanation is given to them by the first person that they trust, essentially. Well, and that they're very corrupt and that there's these committees that, um, and probably lots of them that have, you know, one person controlling others and being paid off or anything like that. And we'll see later, like, the person the committee sends to execute Buckbeak is a Death Eater, or was a Death Eater, McNair. Walden McNair, who I think uh, probably really enjoys chopping things heads off, um, Mm -hmm. but... Uh, the ministry has employed him for probably a long time. Um, 
and yeah, and, and it's the corruption and it's the laziness. We see in the fifth book also like when they um, are quote unquote investigating the incident with Harry and the Dementors, the the level of investigation that the ministry has actually done here is totally flimsy. Right. It seems like they just accepted the first explanation they were given by Umbridge and then they didn't even bother looking into it further. They didn't anticipate any defense being given. They just assumed that it was as simple as she said it was. Mm-hmm. So, you know, it is it is a pretty ineffectual government and um, one wonders like how it specifically has shaken Hermione's faith in it at this point, but certainly at least a little bit. And back to this specific instance with Buckbeak's trial, um, I think that this shows the corruption is kind of always there. They're always infectual. But um, Hagrid as professor is particularly offensive to um, them and Lucius Malfoy in particular, thinking that why would this, you know, half giant be here? Why would he be doing this? Yeah. And Um, and again, like we know that it's not an open secret that Hagrid is a half giant. It, it is a secret. Right. So it's more that they just think of him as like a, a savage. You know? Right. They just assume or they think he's a savage. They they know that he was kicked out of school. I assume they know about the Chamber yeah. of Secrets. He was just an Azkaban last year. So all these things that are coming up, they're thinking we can't have him. Yeah. They're thinking of him kids. as just like a wayward, large man who has too much of a fondness for dangerous things. And, you know, so that is, you know, makes a lot of sense. And I think that one thing I'm wondering is, you know, why does Dumbledore not have a final say here? Or could there have been some middle ground? Yeah. But I wonder, you know, I guess once there's a dangerous creature involved, it kind of goes out of the school jurisdiction completely and to the ministry. Yeah, I think it's it's like, you know, if there were a really serious assault on a college campus or something like that, the police would still probably investigate it as much as the college would prefer to have its own internal um, jurisdiction over that matter. It's like, it's an actual crime. You have to let the police investigate it, which yeah. isn't always the case, right. but um, let's not get into that. Like, I think, I think in this case, it's like the law comes into play and it's yeah. no longer Dumbledore's decision what happens. And we do see like he does fight for, Buckbeak on Hagrid's behalf. Yes. Um, so, you know. And Dumbledore is usually, we find, at odds with the Ministry, so he probably doesn't have a lot of control when um, when something like this happens and they're all against him. Um, yeah, but we wonder, like, when that happens, because Fudge seems like a big fan of Dumbledore's. You know, we hear from Hagrid that when, uh, or rather from, I think, Sirius Black in the next book, that when... Fudge took the top job as Minister of Magic. He basically bombarded Dumbledore with emails, um, with, with, <laughs> with owl email. mails. Definitely emails. <laughs> <laughs> every, like, every day asking for advice on this or that situation. Mm-hmm. You know, we wonder, like, at what point we see it happen next book where they really reach their parting of the ways. But, you know, we wonder, like, at what point did Dumbledore lose faith in Fudge's ability to govern yeah. um, in the bureaucracy as a whole? Because he definitely seems to have lost it by now. Right. And the last thing about this um, scene is that I just think it's really sweet that all these 13-year-olds, you know, the three of them, are really trying to help with this research that they, you know, don't really have the ability to do. I mean, maybe Hermione, but still, it's really um, sweet and hard that they're going to the library and saying, we're going to, you know, we're going to help you, Hagrid. We're going to find some legal precedent, basically. Yeah. <laughs> They're um, looking through old cases of magical law, textbooks, and decisions. 
Yeah, it's pretty sweet. And then, you know, I think it really is lucky in a way that Hagrid is so, like, distressed and has this, like, huge problem that they need to deal with now because it distracts Harry from his, like, singular purpose of the chapter, which was, I need to, like, take my anger out on somebody. Mm-hmm. Um, and he was, like, when they suggested, like, let's go visit Hagrid, Harry was kind of like, yeah, let's go visit Hagrid, and I can ask him why he never told me that my parents' best friend betrayed them. Right. Um, and he's, like, still in this very angsty 13-year-old angry person mode. Um, but then yeah. he gets so distracted by Hagrid's plight, and he immediately forgets about his anger, and he's, like, just trying to help. Yeah, it's particularly lucky because now that I'm thinking about it, maybe that wasn't the best plan since Hagrid was one of the people that he just overheard saying all this. So that's maybe not the best person to go to see immediately. Yeah. Um, but I think that you're right, that this is a good distraction and um, it helps it sort of calm Harry's immediate rage for a minute. It's also good because like, I think the chapter would be boring if it were just a series of Harry being angry and oh, yeah. yelling at people. So it's lucky for the reader yes, also. Yes, very true. So back to the Firebolt and how it actually came to be in Harry's possession. So we had some early foreshadowing when Harry is in um, Diagon Alley and he's going every day to see the Firebolt. Mm-hmm. Um, so we know that we know that it's really coveted by Harry. Um, and in this moment, he's so upset about the news about Black that this magical present feels like the best possible distraction. I mean, he's so excited. Um, so, of course, he's going to be just thinking about the positives here. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. And so I'm now I'm trying to think about the logistics of what um, we know that Sirius Black did send the Firebolt, but not in a malicious way. So I'm wondering um, how this kind of came to be. Is there any way that Black knows what Harry overheard and is trying to make up for it? Um, does he not really think that the gift is going to be suspicious or questioned? Um, I'm wondering kind of what his motivation is in this case. I guess, like, to answer those questions, I think I think Black doesn't have any idea about Harry learning about this stuff. It's just that he, he was at the Quidditch match, and so right. he saw Harry fall, and he probably, like, overheard about the Nimbus being destroyed. He felt like it was his fault because, like, the Dementors caused Harry's fall, and they're only at Hogwarts because Sirius Black escaped mm-hmm. from Azkaban. So Sirius probably feels really guilty about that, and he's sending the Firebolt to try to make up for it. Um, another little aside, we learn much later in the series that Sirius Black once also gave Harry a broom for his first birthday. Oh, yes. A little toy right. broom that he rode around on. So um, it's the second time Sirius has given Harry a broomstick. Mm-hmm. Uh yeah, so I think the real question here is, like, how did he have that much money saved up? Cause yes, I was thinking that, too. even, like, rich Harry Potter was like, well, if I bought this, I would have no money to spend on, like, anything. Maybe it was, like, serious as inheritance from his parents and brother who have died since he went to prison. Um, or but, maybe, I mean, how would he even get access to that from his escape from prison? Rich people have, you know, offshore accounts. That, <laughs> yeah, you know, you're right. Uh, probably something like that. Um, but, but yeah, for the, for the last question, like, does he not think the gift will be suspicious? I don't know. Mm-hmm. Uh, maybe he just didn't think about it. Um, but he certainly took that gamble. I mean, he's hoping that it'll get through, which it eventually does because he hasn't cursed it. So right. once it's all checked out, um, Harry will get it back. So he's probably thinking that, of, you know, eventually he'll get to write it. And, you know, I wonder like 
whether they have a thing in the magical world where you can sort of send a product back to the manufacturer and make sure that it's not damaged in any way. Because, like, presumably the manufacturer of the Firebolt would have, like, a QA department that could, like, take the package and be like, okay, yeah, it's not cursed. We'll send it back to you. Yeah, well, it's, I mean, I guess now it's just all of these um, different faculty members are doing things to yeah, it. Yeah, like, McGonagall and Flitwick are like, let's get in there. We've let's, never gotten to take apart a broomstick before. Yeah, this will let's be fun. see how this works and... <laughs> I don't, know. I don't know. But also, presumably, like, if they sent it back to the manufacturer, the QA department would probably handle that in, like, a day and then send it back pretty quickly. So maybe we just needed to have the broom out of commission for a while because that's, like, relatively important to the story. True. That, like, Hermione and Harry and Ron are estranged for a while. You know, it's, like, a major part of the next few chapters. Oh, yeah. So the Christmas dinner scene. Um, I really like this scene because it's very unique um, to have – a small gathering, you know, this is one of the only times that we have anything like this at all. And especially in the Great Hall, there's just one table. They're all sitting together. Mm-hmm. Um, we see kind of more of the dynamics between the professors um, because they're sitting at the same table with the students and everyone's all together. Yeah. Um, so there are a lot of comedic moments that come up, especially between McGonagall and Trelawney. And we'll talk a little bit more about that. But I, I like it. the scene in general is is a, kind of a break from the normal. Yeah, it's really nice. It's a very lighthearted scene in general, um, mm-hmm. Trelawney's predictions aside. But, like, Dumbledore and Snape share wizard crackers, and yeah. Dumbledore puts on, like, a, I think it's like a violet hat. Yeah. He's something. just, like, having a good time. Yeah. You know? it, it's really nice we get to see another side of these teachers mm-hmm. um, than the usual strict, you know, high-backed people. We get to see them, like, let their hair down, so to right. speak. Um, so that's really nice. So, yes, there are um, now some darker moments that seem uh, lighthearted at the time, but we have talked about wanting to operate on the assumption that all of Trelawney's predictions are true or eventually come true um, because there is a lot of evidence for that. So um, let's discuss the predictions that she makes during this um, dinner and what they mean. Yeah. So the first one is that Lupin's time is short. Mm -hmm. Um, That, doesn't necessarily mean that he's going to die. I think a lot of them sort of interpret it that way because she generally predicts that people will die. Um, But, you know, not only is it actually true because he will die in the seventh book, um, but it's also like very true in this book that his time at Hogwarts is short. Right. Um, And it's possible that Trelawney has actually worked out that he's a werewolf. I think it's more likely that this is just another one of her predictions coming true. Yes. Um, Lupin seems to be afraid of her reading his palm or crystal gazing for him. Um, so he doesn't want her to find out the truth about him. Yes. Um, but also that, you know, this, this curse that's been hanging over the defense against the dark arts position since Voldemort cursed it however many years ago is still there. Yes. So no one's lasted more than a year. It's a pretty safe prediction to make that Lupin also won't last more than a year. Yes. And I do think that probably, I think she probably does not know that he's an actual werewolf, but I think that she probably knows that something is wrong and can get that sense um, you know, which, you know, anyone can kind of get that sense, but I think that she probably knows that there's something, um, some, you know, more underlying issue going on than yeah, other people do. For sure. The other prediction is one of my absolute favorite predictions she makes in the book, which is, um, that when 13 dine together, the first to rise will be the first to die. Right. Which is just a fantastic, uh, thing to say. Yeah. First of all, I think it conjures to mind, um an image of the Last Supper mm-hmm. of, of um, the Bible when 
um, Jesus was dining with his 12 disciples. Mm -hmm. And the first person to rise was actually uh, Judas Iscariot, who then, like, kills himself after he gives Jesus up to be executed. Right. Um, so that that's, like, what it conjures to my mind. And then we we see that, like, Harry and Ron get up from the table at the same time. And, mm -hmm. every, and Trelawney's like, which of you got up first? Mm -hmm. um, and it's a very tense moment. And Harry and Ron are trying to, like, laugh it off a little bit. Mm -hmm. um, and, and McGonagall says... You know, unless there's a mad axe murderer waiting out in the entrance hall, I think we'll be okay. <laughs> right. Which is very funny, and, yeah. and we're glad that she makes a joke like that. But in fact, if we believe that Scabbers is there in Ron's pocket, which he usually is, that means that before Trelawney arrived, there were already 13 people dining at the table mm -hmm. together. And since Dumbledore actually stood up to greet Trelawney as she entered the hall... That means that he would have been the first one to die. And we do see that of those 13 people, Dumbledore is the first to die. Right. He dies in the sixth book. So in that way, the prediction is true. Yes. <laughs> okay, now on to kind of the climax of the um, Hermione's betrayal of the two, um, Harry and Ron, about the firebolt. So um, during this dinner, um, or after the dinner is over... Um, Hermione says, I'm going to meet with the Gonagall, something about her schedule. And she's been doing that, we know, literally. Yeah. And Harry and Ron also know that she's been meeting with McGonagall about her time turner. But um, they're just like, all right, Hermione and McGonagall are weird. She has her weird schedule. So it's not unusual for her to do this. So they're not very suspicious. Um, and I'm thinking that at this point, because of the time turner situation Hermione and McGonagall are likely really close already and yeah. have this have a bond where Hermione feels like she knows her and can trust her um to do the right thing and also not you know make things too much big of a deal all that stuff so yeah. they Hermione knows what she's doing by going to McGonagall um so what do we think about her reporting the firebolt let's try to take some different perspectives and like think about um what everyone's perspective is on this so i'll take harry and ron's perspective first just because it's the most explicit one it's the easiest to tackle for right now um since they're like 13 year olds they're not considering the like the broader implications of this all they know is like harry's been gifted a priceless broom just when he needed one um with no strings attached mm -hmm. um and hermione is trying to take it away so even after she tells them her rationale for having it confiscated they're still mad i think they understand deep down that she was acting in their best interests um but they just can't believe that she would have done that without talking to them first about it right yes i do think uh, so so and hermione's perspective as we know is that this is dangerous and harry and ron aren't gonna be able to see that it's dangerous and she needs to kind of do what she can to make sure that Harry's safe, and this is her only reasoning for that. Um, I do wonder now a little bit about why she didn't talk to them about it first, but I think that she was trying to basically not have them get be suspicious and then maybe hide it or do something so that that couldn't happen um, or have Harry use it before, you know, um, she wanted to kind of get ahead of the situation. Yeah, and I wonder if that was part of her reason for acting in a unilateral fashion. But it is also, like, a point that I think Harry and Ron struggle with a lot. Mm -hmm. It's not so much that, like, the firebolt's gone and they might never get it back. 
I mean, that is bad for them. Mm-hmm. But it's also that, like, Hermione didn't trust them enough to talk to them about it. Yeah. Too. I think that actually does hurt them. Definitely. Um, but, yeah, no, I think from her perspective, she thought that that was the best way to respond because she was worried that they wouldn't understand. And from her perspective, it kind of seems like she was right. They don't understand. So they don't. It's uh- not too hard to agree with her. And I, again, kind of always coming back to what is Hermione's, like, physical and mental state right now during um, this year. We're now in the middle of the year. She's been doing this class schedule thing. Um, Yeah, and she's already a pretty anxious person. She's extremely stressed. She's extremely tired. Um, And then all this is happening with Harry and Sirius, and she's worried about that. So she's really... um, you know, close to a breaking point, I think, although she she definitely gets farther along in that um, to the breaking point later on. But yeah. I think that she's really, you know, not doing well. And I think that she is not really thinking about all the implications of, oh, if I say this, then they're going to be mad at me because I should have confided in them. She's just like, no, we can't deal with this. We got to make sure that Harry doesn't die in a broom. So let me just go, you know, take care of this situation and i don't really care what people think of me i i have not thought of this until just now but what if she's also like traumatized from harry's first year when he was on a broom that was being cursed oh yeah i'm sure she is maybe she's like thinking back to that and she's like never again (laughs) you know exactly and she also just saw him fall from his broom and she's seen a lot of bad things happen to harry in general and especially during during quidditch matches yeah. Um, and she just doesn't want to feel like if she had reported, you know, that she has this suspicion and inclination that something's going on and she doesn't want to feel guilty if it does turn out that it is cursed because she had the suspicion and didn't report it. So I have one other point, which is that Hermione doesn't report the Marauder's Map to McGonagall, even though we know that it's possible that Black knows about these secret passages and we know that it's possible that he's using them to get in and out of Hogwarts. Mm-hmm. So, like, the fact that she doesn't report that, what does that say about her motive for reporting the Firebolt, then? Yeah, I think that's, that is interesting. And um, I'm not exactly sure. I think that it seems more harmless to her. Although she does... Yeah, she does complain about the map, and she does talk about Harry's safety to him. She does, like, threaten... At one point, I think, to report the map to McGonagall, but then she's like, no, I won't. Of course, I won't report it. So I think that she sort of has this, first of all, she feels bad for Harry and she wants him to kind of have this um, way to get to Hogsmeade or see them. But I think she also just has a sense that this is something really special and unique. And like, I feel I feel that she thinks it was created by some benevolent force. um, Right. Which, you know, is true. And I don't think that she, you know, she she can see the, like, mischief manage and all that stuff. She can see that it's not intended to harm, although it could, of course, be used to mm-hmm. commit crimes. But I think that with the fireball, with no note, no indication to her, for her, that feels very sinister. That there's just nothing there. And I think Harry sees it as, like, wow, this is an amazing anonymous gift. And she sees it as... This is creepy. There's nothing here. Yeah, and I think it's it also represents a more imminent and tangible threat to her. Yes, for sure. I think with the Marauders map, it's like a, there's a possibility of a threat, but it's not as like concrete. And I think she also probably feels like okay, well, if Harry has the map, then that means somebody sinister does not have the map. And she, although yes, it's possible that Black might be using those secret passages at this point, she doesn't know that. 
you know, anyone has really used the map before or in a long time besides Fred and George. Yeah. And it, and it turns out, as we will learn later on, um, that the passage that Black is using is known to Dumbledore, at least. Mm-hmm. Um, in addition, Lupin knows about it. Snape knows about it. Um, I don't think McGonagall knows about it. But but yeah, there are at least three professors at Hogwarts that know about the secret passage between the Shrieking Shack and the Whomping Willow. Right. Um, so you wouldn't need the map to be in the hands of the teachers for them to know that. Right. Um, so it doesn't even need to be confiscated for that reason. That said, though, she doesn't know that. So it's it's kind of just like she's taking it on faith that Black's using some other way of getting in. Yeah. And I think that that, again, just goes back to the state that she's in where she's trying to, she's making some, you know, probably relatively good decisions, but she is not, you know, all of her decisions don't make total sense because she's not thinking fully logically at this point. Thank you all for listening to Harry Podcast and the Firebolts. We hope you've enjoyed our discussion of this chapter. If you guys have thoughts or questions about anything we've discussed today, especially Trelawney's predictions or um, the way that Hermione responds to the Firebolt being given as a present, then please email us at contact at theharrypodcast.com. You can find out more about the show and listen to any of our episodes at theharrypodcast.com or on Apple Podcasts. Stay tuned for next time when we charm our way through Chapter 12, The Patronus. I'm Madeline. And I'm David, and we'll see you next time on the Harry Podcast. Knox.